this is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. We are excited to continue our exploration of opioid use disorder from the perspective of the ED. The first episode explored the novel issue of Trank Dope, and then we rebeated the 2018 episode, The Game Has Changed, which dives into the details of medication-assisted treatment, or MAT. Today, we're going to talk about the updates to MAT specifically around the X waiver. To start us off, we want to share the powerful story of Dr. Steve Anderson. Steve was the ASEP chair of the board from 2018 to 2019. His story was recorded on April 4, 2019 at the Washington ASEP Summit to Sound Conference and originally released in our series produced for the Cal ASEP Matt episode one, Casey Was My Daughter. Then we will hear from Dr. Amy Mullen, professor of emergency medicine and chief of the Division of Addiction Medicine at UC Davis. Casey was my daughter. Casey is one of two people in the world, two women in the world that I love to the moon and back. And I'm not sure if it was genetics, she was adopted. I'm not sure if it was the influence of her father that had her rappelling down waterfalls, who had her um, climbing on ropes between mountains. I'm not sure if it was the fact that CenturyLink Field was always louder when Casey was in the house. But Casey lived life to the fullest. And when um, someone said to her, you know, hey, why don't you try heroin? Casey first smoked heroin, but as the story goes, way too often, Casey was using a needle. And in Casey's own words, she'll tell you that the very first time heroin touched her lips, within one minute, she knew she was addicted for life. But I want you to understand that I love my daughter Casey with all my heart. I love my daughter, Casey, as fiercely as I hate heroin. Any addict or any loved one or any father of an addict will tell you that it's a roller coaster. You start by wanting to get high, but very soon it's all about not wanting to be low. The same goes for the families. The same goes for the fathers. As Casey went up and down, periods of sobriety, periods of relapsing, I've ridden on the same roller coaster. There's hope, there's forgiveness, there's mercy, alternating with fear and guilt and regret. You know, you fear the disaster, you fear that the roller coaster is going to blow up, and then you pray for a great day the next day of clean sobriety. And in the downtime, you start to question your own parenting. I've even had people come up to me and ask, where did you go wrong raising Casey that she became a heroin addict? I think about that over and over and over. Um, I was lucky a couple months ago to stumble across an article written by Jerome Adams. Jerome Adams is the Surgeon General of the United States. And Dr. Adams tells his story that his brother's uh, serving a 30-year sentence for the terrible things that he did to feed his addiction. Surgeon General, felon junkie, same parents. It's not always about parenting. Heroin can trump upbringing, relationships, love, if we let it. 
So this talk's supposed to be about how this life experience has changed my practice. So I'm going to tell you two stories to start off with. I'm going to tell you one that at Auburn, we were one of the, we have the second hospital in the state of Washington to create a naloxone program where you could take home naloxone. Um, and we built a pack that cost us 25 or 28 bucks to produce with two um, ampules of naloxone and a nasal sprayer, and we gave it to people that were at risk. And I can tell you that as proud as I was about that program, it doesn't prepare you for the first time you get the phone call that your daughter's been resuscitated by naloxone. It was police the first time. I'm glad police have it, and it's not locked up only with EMS and only in our Pixis. But the second time, it was with a friend who had gotten naloxone from our program. And so I can tell you that now every single patient that I see who's got opiate use disorder, while I'm draining their abscess, while I'm talking about their resuscitation with them, I offer them naloxone. They should have it. It should be out there in our communities. Like I said, Casey was resuscitated by a number of different things, and the guy I took care of two nights ago told me he's resuscitated 15 of his friends with the naloxone that he had, and he was glad to take another prescription from me. So we need to offer them ways to get out of that spiral to save their lives so that we can move on to the next step. Maybe the penultimate worst day of my life was 16 months ago. Casey was all lined up to go down to rehab in California. We had a 10 a.m. flight for her to check in at 6 p.m., and it was a cold, rainy, foggy day in Seattle. And if you've ever been in Seattle, you know that meant that the flight got delayed, and the flight got delayed. And 5 o'clock, the flight finally got canceled. And we were rescheduled for the next morning to go on the next flight. So I'm driving Casey home, and Casey says to me, Dad, I can't make it you got to let me out of the car. I'm not going to make it. And so as a dad, I had to drive Casey to her dealer's house. And I had to wait outside in the rain while Casey went upstairs and got hooked up and got high so that she could make it to the flight the next morning, which she did. But I now have an X license. And that night, there was no place to go to get Suboxone or Buprenorphine for her. And so I went the next week and my hospital has now created an MAT program where we can give it in the department and we can have people followed up with the warm handoff. And I'm just gonna tell you uh, that, um, that nobody should have to miss their window and have to go back to injecting because we haven't taken the time to create an MAT program to salvage them in that window when they're looking for help. But, you know, more important than programs in the emergency department, I'm going to tell you how this has changed me as a person and as a doctor. I've jettisoned all my judgmental attitudes. My ED needs to be a place of healing that folks can come to with disease and they feel welcome. There are good guys and bad guys in this opiate history. I can talk to you for hours about body trafficking, which is not sex trafficking. It's moving vulnerable individuals from rehab program to rehab program for the profit. This is becoming an industry, rehabilitation, and there are heroes and there are dark hats in this too. But it's a vulnerable population, and I want you to know I don't use the word drug seekers anymore. I don't call my COPDers albuterol seekers. 
I don't call my DKAers insulin seekers. Heroin's a monster. And addiction will make good people do bad things to feed that monster. But addicts aren't evil people all the time. They're people just like us. And they're members of families. They have complicated backgrounds. And when they find their way to our gurneys to ask for help, we need to help. So, um, unfortunately, when Alicia and I started to write this program and turned in our slides six weeks ago, um, I was going to tell you that Casey was at 90 days clean and sober. Unfortunately, um, uh, she was planning on getting her chair back. She was planning on moving home. Um, she, but she was worried. She said, Dad, you know, every single time I relapse, and I know I'm going to relapse, it's, it's Russian roulette because my tolerance changes and I just don't know what's out there. Um, and on February 18th, Casey OD'd again and there wasn't anybody there with naloxone. Um, if you're a reader and you haven't read Dreamland, I want to task you all to read the book Dreamland in the next year. It's the 30-year history of the opiate epidemic in the United States, and I can honestly tell you that every single page of my copy has a teardrop on it. Um, the author, Sam Quinones, in his epilogue, at the very end, he tells us that um, there's no policy, there's no single pill, there's no magic that's going to get us out of this epidemic. What's going to get us out of this epidemic is rebuilding community, removing the stigma around addiction, and inviting our addicts back in with love and with support. And so that's what I do now. And when I go to work, I try to do the same. And I'm going to ask you to do the same because the next person through the door for you might be Casey. And we can save them one life at a time. And I really want to ask you all to devote yourself to that. And I thank you for listening to my story. Welcome, Amy. Great to be here. Thank you, guys. Okay, so we first spoke about MAT in 2018. And since then, things have evolved a little, right? <laughs> <laughs> One of the big changes is that President Biden in December 2022 eliminated the X waiver. So remind us briefly, what was the X waiver and its requirements for providers? Okay, so this is huge, and there is a huge opportunity with the elimination of the X waiver. So the X waiver required prescribers to get an extra special license to prescribe buprenorphine. So despite the fact that we were all allowed to write for OxyContin with abandon, <laughs> the medication that prevented opioid use disorder that is really impossible to overdose on had extra regulations, extra training requirements, extra reporting requirements. Those are all gone. Everything is gone. So every prescriber with a DEA can currently today write a prescription for buprenorphine with no extra requirements. This is huge. If you look at the landscape of people who need treatment for substance use disorders, 
it is enormous. And so this is an all hands on deck approach that we need to implement in the United States. So everyone with a DEA out there, you can now include opioid use disorder treatment medications as a part of your practice. So we really need to take advantage of this moment when we can finally expand access to treatment. You've kind of touched on this, but let's just say it out loud. Why did this need to be eliminated? You know, it it really made no sense, right, that a specific medication, and we're talking about buprenorphine. So MAT, remember, encompasses methadone and naltrexone. Methadone still for opioid use disorder requires those daily visits at a methadone clinic. But for buprenorphine, which is a medication that can be prescribed, um, this is a really powerful medication that has been shown to save lives. And the great thing is these added regulations that we had that made it difficult for people to access buprenorphine and was a barrier to prescribers, that is gone totally gone. So primary care doctors, emergency physicians, pediatricians can now incorporate MAT as a part of their practice. And if you look like the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, they found around 10 to 11 percent of people with a substance use disorder received any treatment in the prior year. So that leaves like, oh, I don't know, 90% of Americans who need access to treatment. So this is, this is really an important step. And I think as prescribers, we need to meet this moment and change our practice and incorporate buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid use disorder. The other way to ask it is, why was it there in the first place? Oh, Lord knows. <laughs> So really the historical piece is um, the idea was that you could not prescribe an opioid to someone who had an opioid use disorder. So you didn't want to be um, essentially pushing medication. So prescribing a full agonist to someone with opioid use disorder was restricted. Buprenorphine being a partial agonist kind of got caught up in that. So because it's a partial agonist, you would be prescribing opioid to someone with an opioid use disorder. That was illegal. So the X waiver made this workaround so that people could prescribe buprenorphine, that partial agonist, to someone with an opioid use disorder. But it was a tough workaround. It required extra training. It required um, restrictions on the number of patients that you were taking care of extra reporting to the DEA, and it really, at the end of the day, made no sense. That was the thought process way back when they were trying to keep people from giving opioids to people with opioid use disorder. Okay, so the X waiver is gone, and now anyone with a DEA can prescribe buprenorphine. We don't even need to think about it. Beautiful. What kind of restrictions are there now in terms of prescribing buprenorphine from the ED? None. (laughs) (laughs) There's none. There's none. So if you have a DEA license, you can write a prescription for buprenorphine. Is there any restriction in the amount that you can write or the number of days? Uh Uh-uh. No. You can write a prescription for buprenorphine. This is a regular medication. So everybody, go out there. Write a prescription for buprenorphine for any indication. Yes. There are no (laughs) restrictions. Okay. So tell us, where can people go to be educated and to find out what they need to do to prescribe this intelligently? Okay, so there's also a little bit of a catch. 
So remember the eight hours of education that you had to get to get your X waiver. Well, that's not gone. Um, Everybody with a DEA, when you go to renew your DEA, if you haven't graduated from medical school in the last five years, is going to have to attest that you have had eight hours of addiction training. So that eight hours is not about buprenorphine. That eight hours is about you prescribing controlled substances. So anyone who continues to prescribe OxyContin um, as after dental procedures, they're going to need those eight hours. So that eight hours is about maintaining your DEA license. So wonderful is you're actually going to get credit for any education you do. Um, we have a fantastic website on cabridge.org, which has really easy educational modules has an ED quick start, which is an easy guide that shows you how to start buprenorphine in the emergency department, in any acute care setting, or really outpatient. It's just a, a quick start on buprenorphine. Tons of resources if anyone wants to go there. And count your hours of CME because you'll need them for your DEA renewal next time you're up. Shoot, I got to check my calendar. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what about telehealth? Can we prescribe virtually? Yes. So this is one of those pieces that is still unknown as of today. Previously, there was the Ryan Hate Act that's in 2008, which said you cannot prescribe controlled substances without an in-person visit. And that restricted telehealth for buprenorphine because buprenorphine is a partial agonist and it's a controlled substance. Well, during the pandemic, as part of uh, the public health emergency, those restrictions were removed because we did a lot of healthcare via telehealth. I mean, telehealth really expanded, in particularly these loosening of regulations, is you could prescribe controlled substances without any in-person visits, and that included buprenorphine. Well, the public health emergency is over, and we're not sure at this moment what is going to happen to telehealth for buprenorphine. We do not know what those final telehealth regulations are going to be. Buprenorphine via telehealth has been wonderful for a lot of people, particularly people in rural areas, for people who have transportation issues, getting into clinic. And as we know, I mean, buprenorphine is a partial agonist. It's used to treat addiction. So I think we're hoping that buprenorphine can be treated separately from some of the full agonists. There's definitely been some challenges over the pandemic in terms of the proliferation of telehealth companies providing ADHD treatment. There's shortages of Adderall because we've seen a proliferation in the amount of Adderall being prescribed via telehealth. And so to some extent, maybe those in-person regulations are important, but I think buprenorphine is a safe medication. It's highly effective, and it'll be interesting to see if we're given some flexibility to continuing telehealth treatment for addiction. Amy, what are some other changes in the world of medication-assisted treatment for opiate use disorder? Fentanyl is everywhere. And what we have found with fentanyl is we're using higher doses. We're starting people on higher doses and people are taking higher doses of, of buprenorphine. 
But I think just knowing that buprenorphine still works the same as it did for old-fashioned heroin, we just see people who use higher doses. Um, and I think we're seeing more people who use the long-acting injectable with sublocade, which is a fantastic opportunity for some people to have a once-a-month injection of buprenorphine. So I think that there are some new medications, new dosing regimens that are really helpful for people. And I think, you know, the more that we take this all-hands-on-deck approach, decrease stigma, I think that I'm pretty hopeful that we can meet the moment. Wait, can you go back to that injectable? Because I didn't know about that. That's really interesting to me. Does that also have Suboxone in it? And did that last that long? Yes. Whoa. So there is a long-acting injectable buprenorphine that is basically a one-month injection that gives you ideally continuous buprenorphine. So you don't have to take a pill two, three times a day. You can get a one-month injectable. You don't have to worry about maintaining your prescriptions, remembering to take your medications. I know I have problems with that. So I think it's a really fantastic option for people. Shut the front door. That is, medicine is freaking amazing, man. (laughs) (laughs) Amy, is that something you're starting from the ED? So I'm working on it. We don't currently have it on our formulary at UC Davis, but stay tuned. That's something we're working on. Because, right, this is a huge opportunity for a lot of our patients who, you know, live in that space where getting to a pharmacy, keeping track of your medications is a real barrier. And having that one-month injectable is a huge opportunity for people. Um, So I think it would be really fantastic for our ED population. Amy, can you just walk me through what you start in the emergency department now with fentanyl on board, like what your dosage schedule is and then how you figure out what they should go home on? Yes. So fentanyl is a tiny bit of a challenge in that people... (laughs) Sorry, understatement (laughs) of the year. (laughs) Oh, well, fentanyl is a little bit of a challenge. And that it takes people longer to withdraw. So we we sort of missed the old days of heroin when we had more of a predictable timeline around when someone went into withdrawal. So we're having to wait a little bit longer to start buprenorphine, but I'm also starting people at a higher dose. So I'm, as opposed to the eight milligram start, I'm tending to go with 16 milligrams right out of the gate and then escalating faster. Um, usually going to 24 milligrams the first day. And then my dosing depends on individual preference, but I'm using a little bit more higher doses. And some people like taking the TID dosing of buprenorphine rather than the twice daily or once daily buprenorphine. I think that has to do with the frequency that people were using fentanyl, and it is a little bit reassuring to have a medication that they can take continuously throughout the day. But basically, that is patient preference, but I'm tending to go up to 24 as opposed to 16 milligrams. Okay, so Amy, what is your best advice for starting MAT out of your ED? 
Just do it. It's so easy. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, seriously, buprenorphine starts out of the ED are really easy. We're mostly doing this in fast track. You don't need an X waiver. It's really one of the easiest things you're going to do in emergency medicine. I will say the other piece, which is wonderful, that we have at UC Davis and a lot of California EDs have, which is your substance use navigator, who is that amazing human who really helps bring the whole thing together to follow up with patients, to make sure that they get connected to outpatient treatment, to deal with all of the transportation and pharmacy barriers. So for us in the ER, I just write a prescription. I mean, it's the easiest thing ever. And really, we all need to start writing prescriptions for buprenorphine if we are ever going to begin to dig ourselves out of the hole of the need for treatment that we have in this country. Okay, well, that is our update on opioid use disorder. And this issue is so important. If you found this helpful, please share this series with your colleagues. This is one of those public health issues that we can really make a difference on from the ED. (laughs) One, Sarah. (laughs) Okay, okay, one of many, but it is important. Thank you to our department for supporting these efforts. And thank you to OM Productions for making this all happen. See y'all next time.